Okay, well, Gordon, welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast for your second appearance on the pod. Do you even remember what your first one was? I remember uh, making a few oblique comments about Zardoz. The gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men as once it was. For people that don't know, Gordon is, well, you're Gordon Ramsay. Right. But you're not that Gordon Ramsay. Which is another another problem. But let's not even, yeah. I shouldn't have even said that. I should just let people. There's no avoiding it. It's, I should just let people just think doesn't. you're the Gordon. You are, to me, you are the Gordon Ramsay. Right. The other guy is just some usurper in an alternative universe as if he yeah, it's, crossed it's like through a portal in Phantasm. Our, our, our universe, the lines of our, our um, alternate timelines managed, crossed by mistake somehow. Have you ever met the other Gordon Ramsay? No, but he was, he was doing a, an appearance in my neighborhood when I first became aware of him. Right. And it was on Prince Street and he was doing something and, I, and it said, Gordon Ramsay will be. And I said, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and I've been wanting to shake him down ever since. That'd be amazing. You're pulling my plonker now, aren't you? Two nights ago, I made a nutmeg toast by mistake. You're trying to make cinnamon toast. You're right. And I I didn't even (laughs) notice until I was halfway through it, you know? (laughs) So he's clearly the real one. He's clearly the real one. No, he's not. You didn't get the genetic (laughs) nutmeg toast, probably a little bitter compared to. It's bad, yeah. I remember as a kid, my mom used to make cinnamon toast with butter, sugar, Mm. and cinnamon, right? It's so that cool. is a 70s snack that you probably, no one makes their children anymore. Oh, we do it. We're keep, you do it? Like we, I mean, you keep it alive? The 70s never ended. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gordon, I'm excited to have you on because Gordon is one of those guys I have ultimate respect for, and you are one of the funniest and most creative people that I know. Hmm. But I also get a big kick out of your angst and self-torture <laughs> because to know Gordon is to encounter him Really, in any number of finely gradiated moods, he's like, where's the board of life and where did I fall on it? I'm, I'm behind and chasing some thing that I'm supposed to have done yet. So you, you're yeah. fueled by this in a way that is a little funny from the outside because I, I look at you from the outside and I think this guy has everything. You, you're, you're, you have an amazing life. You have a wonderful daughter. You're, you work creatively in a number of fields. For crying out loud, Gordon, you're a competitive whistler. That's true. Now imagine that's a crowded field, but still. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Um, just to give you an idea of how I, you know, I'll have everything going for me. Yeah. And then something just goes wrong. I, I was I had a competition scheduled for uh, right. I remember that you had a whistling yeah, competition. It got canceled. And you were you were going to go up against the world. I was going up against whistler. the world champ, Steve the Whistler Herbst. Okay. And I knew I could take him. Okay. And uh, so what happened? It got canceled. Well, the, the guy who was doing the uh, the event, this guy Kid Lucky, who's a beat rhymer. Okay. And he's the one who uh, drafted me into his. Uh, Crew a few years this consortium ago. of whistlers. Well, it's it's all it's mostly beat. Do you guys ride rhymers. hard as a whistling crew? Is that like you know? Do you got to get beat into that? You yeah, know, oh, get yeah. stomped. Got to get a sonic beat down. <laughs> but he finally, uh, two days beforehand, he said he had to cancel it. And I can't. I talked to Steve, and we're going to try to schedule something. Now, in your mind, did you put onto this whistling competition the sort of size of like when I win that, then? the springboard to the next and the next and the next will begin so that when it was taken away from you, rather than just a postponed whistling competition, it took on a freight and a weight that it otherwise may not have possessed. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I look at things sometimes like, you know, why does everything have to fucking do that? You have sort of a Charlie Brown. Yeah. Is that, was Charlie Brown a thing for you as a kid? Uh, I always hated Charlie Brown. You hated Charlie Brown. I, no, Maybe I, it was no, you spotted, you got it. I, I, I you know, I, I read all those Peanuts books. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, I wrote a show. Yeah. That was, remember that? It was that Bezozo yep. show? Yes. Psychotronic Clown. Psychotronic show. Clown, yes. And uh, nine days before opening, the, the producer <laughs> pulled the plug and just can't Don't believe me. We heard about that for a year and a half. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, when am I going to catch a break, you know? 
And but see, Gordon, to us, this is part of your charm. It's not that we laugh at these things occurring to you. It's that there's a certain poetic Gordonness to the to to all of this that I think is only apparent to us looking in from the outside, where you kind of you get it just here and then literally through no fault of your own. That's the amazing thing. Like you're not doing anything wrong. You know, it's all crazy life circumstance. It's like you're living in a 1970s new Hollywood film in the present day. That's, I think, what's amazing. Really? Yeah. The loser. (laughs) He had it all except everything. Okay, so the reason that we're here today is I'm asking people that I love. Gordon, I love you. I admire you. I think you're hilarious. I'm asking people I love about movies they love. And in addition to Zardoz, which is a very Gordon Ramsay movie, you suggested Phantasm, the 1979 American horror film directed, written, photographed, and edited by Don Coscarelli. Mm. Tommy's gone. (laughs) It's hard to believe. It was a good idea not to let your little brother come to the funeral. Hey, I don't like this place. Something weird is going on up there. The funeral is about to begin, sir. (laughs) What's wrong with you? There's something up there. I saw it. You got some kind of an overactive imagination or something? I know you're not going to believe this, but these things were here. Give me a break. Okay, I believe you. What we got to do is lay that sucker out flat and drive a stake right through his goddamn heart. Gonna run that tall bastard straight down to hell. You play a good game, boy. But the game is finished. Now you die. Phantasm. Don't fear. Tell me your memories of Phantasm. Well, Phantasm, that that movie came out at a time when I was obsessed with horror films. Okay. And uh, it was just kind of a perfect hit for me. Because mm-hmm. right around that same time, there was another perfect hit, uh, which was the band Kiss. Sure. And Kiss has, you know, anything that had kind of just a, a bizarre, larger-than-life, weird thing, mm. you know, it, it, it sort of it, it, uh, happened at the same time as, as my discovery of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, Phantasm was this combination of, you know, it's it's uh, science fiction, it's horror, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just, I mean, it it was it was so perfect for me. And so even seeing the commercial as a kid, I, I knew that I had to see that film. And so I started getting obsessive about it, and I, I tried to go see it a couple times, and it didn't work out because mm. uh, you were too young. No, it just uh, you know just, the Gordon just Ramsay again. luck. It was like, oh, what? I read the newspaper wrong. God damn it. <laughs> And uh, then you get in trouble for cursing. Gordon never, never ordered a meal in a restaurant that came the way he asked for it. But I'd eat it anyway. But I'd eat it anyway. Because you know what? That's his life. That's right. It's my fault somehow. Um, but eventually my dad said, all right, let's go. Come on, Gordy. We're going to see Phantasm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and we drove out to wherever it was, a Fox Plaza or something. Now, is this Staten when you, no, you grew up in on Upper Manhattan for a while, but then you guys relocated to Staten Island. Yes, in 1970. So this is when you were in Staten Island. Right. Where would you go to the movies on Staten oh, Island? Oh, there was a number of different movie theaters. There was the Fox Plaza. There was the Highland Cinema. I think it was at Highland Cinema okay. we saw Phantasm. You know, there are all these little twin sure. movies. So it was you and your dad? Right. And so we, we went out to see it. And how old do you th- think you were? I remember, I, I thought I was 12, but maybe I was had just turned 13. Okay. And right so, in um, the sweet spot for this film. I mean, you could have been a Michael Baldwin in this film, the right. protagonist. Yeah. Well, he's the perfect guy to live the film through. Michael, grandmother wants to play a little game. Wow. How'd you do that? Put your hand in the box. What's in it? Just put your hand in the black box. Okay, but what's in it? Hey, this thing really hurts. 
Don't fear, Michael. I can't get my hand out. Don't fear. Give me back my hand. Don't fear. It was simple reflection. Fear is the killer. That's what grandmother wants you to learn. Boy, that really hurt. Look, you could be in this movie. I'd like to reshoot it with me as as Mike. Like you and I have would a dirt amazing. bike and the riding bike, through the graveyard. The graveyard. This is very you. Now that I think about it, I don't know why I didn't put this together. But yeah, okay, go ahead. Don Coscarelli, he he's he knows what he's doing. Oh my and he, god! And he cast one of the real stars of the film, that seventy-one Barracuda. Yes, which is just perfection. The you know? uh, Hemicuda, as oh, they refer yeah. to it, the car. Yeah, so. So do you have a memory of being in the I theater? do, yeah. I remember it so well because uh, th there just was one gift after another in mm -hmm. watching it. The, the, the way that it, uh, it builds, you know, mm. the dread and the tension. And it's then, a very slow build, yeah, impressively it, slow. It's, it's, I think the pacing is really good. And then there's yeah. even the music, you know, and they, they get to know the characters yeah. and they really, he establishes that well. And then the graveyard scene, uh, uh, in the, at the time, a, a real gift for a 13-year-old is to see boobs on camera. Cause, and all of a sudden, there they are. Yes. And it, just, it was funny because watching it again. As Mike in the film. Right. It's a real treat for him. I'm sure that my smile and his <laughs> happened at the same moment. Uh, By the way, scene. stunt boob. I don't oh, know if really? you know that. Yes. Oh, that. that so uh, I think it's huh. Kathy Lester plays the lady mm. in Lavender. Famously, during the very sort of down and dirty production, not, I don't mean down and dirty in a negative way, but just like, this was like literally Don Coscarelli's father was the producer and his wife did all the costumes and it was a agglomeration of friends and family who helped make the movie. But Kathy Lester, I think her mother or father wouldn't let her appear nude in the film. And so they had a stunt boob. Wow. And when they attended the first cast and crew family and friends screening of the film, her mother was sitting next to her. And when the boob appeared on screen, the mother turned to Kathy Lester and said, you should have used yours. Yours were much better. <laughs> so she was like, my own mother didn't think the stunt boob was as good. But yeah, the stunt boob worked for you and it worked for Mike in the film. Yeah, well, I mean, it was pretty rare. I mean, I'd have to wait every once a month to see when the thing sure. intercept the Playboy magazine, my father's uh, subscription. And then, you know, we, I don't think we even had a VCR he, yet. I just want to cl clear your dad's name here. He was getting it for the articles. Oh, the, the article, yeah. reportage. He was well, not getting it for the dirty pictures. No, no. In fact, he used to tape the pages shut that had the naked. Or at least they were stuck. Something stuck them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was, I was just complete. I knew I was in good hands, like, mm -hmm. from the moment the film started. And, uh, but then at, at the end... My dad and I got up to leave and he looked at me and said, boy, was that stupid, huh? And I just decided to let it go. And, and he, he seemed to want me to think it was stupid. So I said, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. interesting. But, I mean, it was. Were you hurt by that? Or what was your experience of like, did you want your dad to like the things you liked or did it not matter to you? It would have been nice. But I mean, you know, my dad was from another era. He was born sure. in 1930. So. Right. Now, Coscarelli, man, I mean, this guy is an amazing director. The shots are insane and beautiful and incredibly well composed. And even working on an independent budget at the time, he's able to shoot on like Panavision and he rented the best cameras and it really looks great. And particularly now when we can watch the bad robot enabled 4K transfer of Phantasm, which is a great story of... Don Coscarelli, who's had this like one of the weirder careers of a director that I can think of ever encountering in doing 70 plus episodes Definitely of the podcast. Not. Like he's always done it kind of himself. The horror genre, the science fiction genre. I mean, those are probably the two most crowded genres of films that you could ever make. Like they make more of those movies than they make of any other type of movie. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, they tend to have the best turnaround. Like low budget, high budget, medium. Like that's just there are hundreds of horror movies that come out every year. Yeah. Probably fewer science fiction movies that come out every year. But these are crowded genres to make anything that has staying power or even a cult appeal is incredibly difficult to do. Yet it's also strange to me that Coscarelli hasn't had like a long career directing horror or science fiction 
outside of the films he wrote and directed and produced and edited. And no, he really hasn't, has he? And I'm not. And I just read his book, which is all about. Oh, his I would career. like to read that. Really yeah. good. He started out, you know, really young in his town. Made a feature film like when he was 19 years old. I guess it's just you and me now. What? Without dad anymore. Yeah, well, it's always been you and me, really. You won't let him come back, will you? No. I just didn't like him to hurt me. Yeah, well, you won't need more. It's called Jim, the World's Greatest. Yeah, this is a film that he made with his friend Craig Mitchell when they were 19 years old. And they ended up selling it to like Lou Wasserman and Sid Sheinberg at Universal or MCA at the time. It was a crazy story. And then they made another film. Kenny and Company. Kenny and Company. In the days leading up to Halloween on a Southern California suburb, 11-year-old Kenny and his best friend Doug play flag football, ride skateboards, get into mischief, and fend off the neighborhood bully. So it's kind of like a you know 12-year-old coming-of-age movie. Like uh, My Bodyguard, remember that? A little bit. Oh, my God, we just had a huge My Bodyguard moment in the pod last week. Oh, did you really? Oh, yes. We were talking about The Outsiders, which Adam Baldwin auditioned to be in The Outsiders. And, of course, Adam Baldwin plays Linderman in My Bodyguard. Oh, he plays the bully? No, no, he plays no. the bodyguard. Adam Baldwin plays... Linderman. Wait. No, wait a second. I thought that was... Um, You're going to say you thought that was Vincent D'Onofrio. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Vincent D'Onofrio. You're the second person that said that. I, mean, I think everyone thinks it's Vincent D'Onofrio. Should we, you know, what we have here is a little bit of um, Mandela effect. It's when people remember um, the past differently, and a certain segment of the population remembers it one. Like, they call it that because a lot of people remember watching Nelson Mandela's funeral in 1992 or something. Okay. When, in fact, he died in 2000-something, right? Weird. But there's like a collective memory. Right, and there are these riffs, a collective, collective memory, a collective mismemory. Right, and well, sometimes a, a relic will appear that proves this alternate Weird. timeline. Hi, it's Jason with a brief interjection. Gordon just mentioned the Mandela effect, and there's actually a few funny examples from the world of movies. The first is from The Silence of the Lambs, which we've previously done on the podcast. Everyone remembers Hannibal Lecter saying, hello, Clarice. But in fact, he says, good morning, when he meets Starling for the first time. Here's a visual example from Star Wars. People remember C-3PO as having a gold-plated chassis, and he does. But with one exception, the lower portion of his right leg below the knee was silver when we first saw him. And this fact apparently sometimes surprises people who've seen the original trilogy dozens of times. And in Risky Business, everybody remembers Tom Cruise dancing in his underwear, a dress shirt, and Ray-Bans, right? Well, no, because that didn't actually happen. He doesn't wear sunglasses in the scene. The reason we all think that he does is because he's wearing shades in other scenes or in the film's posters. Now, the most amazing example is, you probably heard about this, a whole coterie of people on the internet believe that a feature film exists called Shazam, but what they're actually recollecting is Kazam, a 1996 comedy starring Shaquille O'Neal. This is a whole wormhole you can go down on the internet. I advise you to check it out. It's pretty funny. People believe they've seen previews for it. They've had found boxes. There's all kinds of things that pop up. Anyway, a few examples of the Mandela effect. Now back to my conversation with Gordon. Don Coscarelli marshaled these resources. And I, I kept thinking as I'm and I watched. So I watched Phantasm. I watched Phantasm 2, and everyone said, ah, oh, the other ones aren't very good, but, you know, they're kind of worth in parts. I actually liked parts I of some of the other ones. I want to watch them again because I— there, there's did you a follow lot the whole there. franchise? I did, and uh, but not till years later because mm -hmm. I, I kind of you know the movies like I think Phantasm two came out like almost ten years later. It didn't did it? yeah eighty eight. So Phantasm came out in seventy nine. Then he did the Beastmaster, which was a bad filmmaking experience for him. And did, you saw that right? Yes. Was it how was it? I mean, was it Tanya Roberts. Yes. And was she in the nude? Uh, I don't think there's any nudity. It's rated PG. Oh, yeah. Forget So I don't think that. you get any nudity That's in okay. PG. I don't need that sort of thing. Uh, it's not very good. But it's not really his fault that it's not very good. Let me say that. And he's got some funny tales about that in his book. 
you know, I think one of the Coscarelli things to get back to this original point that we just wended around was why he never kind of did other things. And you could read his book and there are kind of in a way that you're just describing, there's a litany of near misses throughout his career that kind of cause you to think, what if? Big feature films that he turned down, you know, uh, episodes of other horror franchises that he turned down or that fell through. But I wonder, you know, he started out doing his own thing and being in total control. And obviously, it's very hard to do that in that business. And so. Well, he reminds me of John Carpenter, you know, like John Carpenter's in the John Carpenter business. Yeah. He's never made anything else. Yeah, that's true. And Don, he wrote all these movies. So you watched them all, didn't you? I, I watched I, I watched one and two, and I watched Ravager, uh, which is the most recent one. Right, that's Phantasm Five. Phantasm Five, yes, uh, and Fan- and Ravager, and I was sort of like not expecting it to be anything because in the book he talks about how basically in over like a two or three year period in 2014, 2015, 16, he and Reggie and a bunch of people from the movie would just get together on weekends and film scenes from this this thing that he wrote, but he wasn't directing it. But they would film these scenes, and they weren't really supposed to be a movie for, until they kind of reached this. Oh, for Ravager, really? Yeah, they were just shooting these these like let's shoot a scene where Reggie and Mike are talking. At a picnic oh, bench okay, at an so old yeah. folks home. And I thought maybe you know, I wasn't paying attention. Mike doesn't like, know, you know, Reggie's not sure, you know, we're not sure if Mike is real or not. Like, yeah, it's and they would very film. strange and dreamlike. It and, is. And it doesn't, but, no, it doesn't make sense. But actually, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I, I thought it was really efficiently directed. And, you know, I don't want to criticize the acting because that's not the point of the exercise in these films, but like, Reggie, you know, the character of Reggie is his friend, right? That's his friend in real life. That's good, Red. Yeah. He was a musician, as you can tell from the great scene in the first Phantasm, where they're playing music on the porch, which I think was quite well done. Once you come up with this iconic floating sphere attack device. You can then kind of go. There a, a scene where uh, one uh, somebody is the the sphere, like they they open his head and the sphere, he has a sphere <laughs> instead of. I don't know if that's real or you dreamed that. I'm not sure. I just don't know anymore. It's just it doesn't Phantasm two start like minutes after? Yes, they all do. Oh, they just are so all of them share the conceit where they will literally begin with the, the last thing moment. you saw. So even though on Phantasm 2, it's now 11 years yeah. later in and real life, it begins with Reggie by the fireplace wondering what the hell happened to Mike. Because remember, Mike gets pulled through. Oh, that's the, right. The mirror. The mirror. In the boy, you play a good game, boy. (laughs) Angus Scrim is so great. He was amazing. I mean, he is, I'm going to say this, hot take time, Gordon. He's one of the iconic horror villains of all time. No question. Right? Oh, yeah. 
And he's a genuinely interesting, scary, unique presence. And it's all entirely because of the actor, I'm going to say. Like that scene in Phantasm where Mike is just aimlessly walking down the street, like sucking on a lollipop yeah, and, then and he's checking the coin. Yeah, he walks by the ice cream truck. Yes, and- that is so fucking creepy. Yeah. I'm getting like goosebumps right now. The slow burn of this movie, I think, as a kid, is way more terrifying to me than jump scares or monsters. Like, the way this first 45 minutes of this movie unfolds, with such dread and such ominous, insane music, too, by the way. The score is fucking amazing. Yeah, that's another thing that makes me think of John Carpenter, because he did all his own music. Uh, This music is insane in this movie. Oh, but I was going to say, so what happened was, there's like this horror roundtable lunch that took place in L.A. over a number of years. And I think somehow through that, Don Coscarelli ended up meeting J.J. Abrams, who at the time was making the first Star uh, Star Trek reboot. And J.J. Abrams asked Don Coscarelli if he could screen Phantasm for his crew at Bad Robot because he was a big fan as a kid of Phantasm. And Don said, yeah, that'd be great. However, All I have are the original, like, 35-millimeter prints. Like, I don't know if it's good enough to show. And J.J. Abrams allowed Don to get a new 4K transfer and audio mix done at Bad Robot so that it's preserved forever. And that's the film you're watching if you watch it on Shudder or on— Oh, uh, that's great. So if you watch Phantasm Remastered, you're watching uh, it preserved, and it looks fantastic. I mean, they they spent— he said to think about $250,000 to make this original. Yeah, it really looks great. You can uh, The mustard fingers, you can see that. All the effects yeah, are great. Effect. Practical effects. Just very cleverly shot. Very, like, the portals, you know, the tuning fork yeah. moment of the guitar that pays off only much later with the with Reggie and the portals, that white room, the barrels. Uh, it's just fucking so weird. Do you weird. remember watching it gleef? Were you like a gleeful horror watcher or were you like a riveted kind of transfixed horror watcher? Uh, well, I mean, both. To me, like, to me, they're the same thing. I mean, I, 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 I've always loved it. It's my favorite thing. And especially if you manage to get the right balance of, mm-hmm. of horror and science fiction that takes it to this whole other level mm-hmm. of weird. You know, I was thinking, we were talking about this, mm-hmm. about how some people don't they can't stand horror films and they mm-hmm. just don't like having their reality fucked with and yeah and some people do and i've always been been down for that <laughs> you know just right from the like just go right please to the edge alter and, my reality i always talk with yeah. my friend buck about when we watched horror movies as teenagers we were laughing like the the sicker the violence the sicker the kill the more we were cackling and laughing and i always wonder like is that a common reaction or are we just really fucked up kids i i think well there's there's a catharsis going on you know it, it's especially if, if you do that you know like for escaping sure and uh it's like you're you're voluntarily subjecting yourself to this horrific experience right because you can walk away from it afterwards you know so but i also think like there is a sense of humor in horror movies and horror movie kills right like they're trying to stage them grandiosely or operatically, right? It's kind of like a great Kung Fu movie where the more Baroque the setup and the move, like you're supposed to sort of laugh and be amazed at the same time. I realize I still can't break through your armor, but I can find your weak spot and I will. But there's 108 possibilities and you've reduced those to five. And I would guess with you, it's the head, temple, throat, Armpits, 
groin. One of those. Right. Just you try it. Oh yeah. Well, did you ever see any of the any of the cannibal films, like Cannibal Holocaust, no. or uh, that's was oh, that uh, Lenzo Umberto Lenzi? Are these like Italian, Italian crazy yeah. Italian horror? And they kept topping like, each other. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fulci would get in in on the act, and um, what's his name, Sergio Martino, and they would constantly try to one up, yeah, to the point where <laughs> out it was ridiculous just each other to people <laughs> getting impaled on stakes, you know, and then eaten alive. <laughs> it's just John. I want this material burned, all of it. Yeah. I actually thought a lot of Phantasm reminded me of like a Jodorowsky kind of art film. Yeah. Like some of the shots are so oh, definitely like yeah, amazingly, like Holy Mountain kind of. Yeah, like it 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 just has a thing. Like it's just one of those things that has this unique quality, and and that's why I'm kind of amazed. Like. It just seems like somebody at a studio through the 70s would have said, this guy can direct horror. Let's give him our A horror script we're in development on. But it never kind of materialized that But way. he was offered things, huh? He was offered things. But, I mean, he has some section of the book that I can't quite recall where he was offered, like, the second uh, Freddy Krueger movie or something. And that sense, he wasn't yeah. that interested in it. I don't know what the second Craven. one was, you know. He also talks a little bit in the book that there's some similarities between the Freddy Krueger universe and what he did in Phantasm, that dream, yeah. you know, the monster that lives in the dream and and Definitely, alternative sure. realities and all these things. So I think there may have been some of that, too, where he was sort of like, they're treading on the yeah, ground. and I compromise his own vision. Yeah. Did you know that Michael Baldwin, who plays Mike, this blew me away because I remember this as a kid, that he did voices for, do you remember the Muhammad Ali cartoon when we were kids? No. So there was like, you know, Muhammad Ali and a group of kids like fighting crime, like a 1977 cartoon called The Adventures of Muhammad Ali. Is no. that ring a bell? You'll, you might know this when I play a little bit for you wow, here. Wow, that's wild. Uh, anyway, A. Michael Baldwin was one of the voices. I mean, you're interested now, right? Yeah, heck yeah. How did I miss this? I don't think you did. I think you're going to, I think it's going to dawningly become familiar to you as you watch this. Is Howard Cosell in it? <laughs> I don't know if Cosell ever made an appearance. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I want to go back to 70s cartoon land. <laughs> Hong Kong Fooey. that kind of flat 2D animation of the mid-70s that's just yeah. does this make you want to eat several bowls of cereal yes, on your does. parents' living room floor on Saturday Lab 2020 now you get the idea Saturday morning cartoons were you a big Saturday morning cartoons guy? Yeah. And, you know, I tried to impart that to my uh, my daughter. Yeah. And I'd say to her, listen, okay, it's Saturday, right? It doesn't mean much to you, I know. But for <laughs> us, that was a holy time, you know, because we would get up really early. Yeah. And we'd go and get our bowls of cereal, <laughs> whatever they were. And everyone had their own thing, sure. you know. Captain like, Crunch. For a long time, I was a Cheerios guy. Really? But I'd dump a bunch of a bunch brown of sugar. sugar on it. Yeah, yeah. sure. I, I've tried to recreate it for a while. I, I, you know, I got, I played some Bugs Bunny mm -hmm. and we would do that. I'd say, it's Saturday, let's do it. It just, it wasn't real because mm. the thing is, you know, when you're watching something that's being broadcast, it's, it adds to the value. If you can just choose anything yeah. on the Akashic record of the, in, the, the internet, yes. you know. Um, yeah, it's different. I mean, when we were kids, that was your first opportunity the whole week to have some time to do what you wanted to do. Aside from like playing with your friends after school or riding around on your bikes or whatever you might have done. But really, Saturday morning was the only time yeah. you were allowed to get up and have control of the television yourself. I was an only child, so my, oh, yeah. my Saturday morning and other TV time was all my own, which was amazing. So I, I can't identify with the fights, but I can definitely identify with going through an entire box of like Crunch Berries or 
I me, mean, I was a big Captain Crunch kid. You know, the idea of eating that now as a breakfast food. No, yeah, it's is horrifying. so horrifying. <laughs> I, my, my parents kind of drew the line at stuff like that. I mean, once in a if we were on the road, you know, we could get uh -huh. those fun packs. Oh, um, like the ones where you would open it up and pour the milk yeah, into the small it was like box. a ready-made bowl. <clears throat> they still make those. You can still buy 12 packs of those at the store. I know. And I'd like to get some and go on the road, in fact. You grew up basically in what I like to think of as a New York City stylized version of the Partridge family. You were a performance family, a family of actors. That's true, yeah. Did you drive around in a bus or van? We had, well, let's see. My dad had a Chrysler Imperial. Mm. Is that a station wagon or a? No, it's just 40 foot long green sedan. shark. Yeah. Now, your father was an actor. Yeah. You were an actor. Your sister was a child actor. Mm -hmm. And your mother was also an actor. Yeah. God. What was your dad's name? His real name was Gordon Ramsay. Oh, he's Gordon Ramsay too. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's see. Let's look up his credits. Have you done this? Do you do this? Do you look him up? Not recently. Star Blazers. Star Blazers. Yeah. Do you know that? that no, I don't know that. Uh, Tell me about animated that animated series uh, from Japan. Ooh, that sounds and, cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. It's, he played um, Captain Avatar mm -hmm. and O'Brien, the engine room guy. I cannot bear to see what has become of Earth, once green and growing with blue lakes and silver streams, great rivers and mighty seas, now all gone, only day and burning desert left, radiation everywhere. Now, your father was Bozo. Yeah, well, my father was, he, you know, he, he got this job, um, he went out, he auditioned for it in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, you know, Larry Harmon is the guy who originated Bozo, mm -hmm. the clown. He bought it. He bought the character from this road clown named Pinto Colvig. And, uh, As one does. Yeah. And, but Larry was really a, a good businessman. So he, he franchised the operation. And so there were lots and lots of Bozos. Like regional Bozo. There, there were, yeah, there's, I think, what's his name? Uh, Willard Scott was mm -hmm. Bozo at one point. And, you know, there was a Brazilian Bozo and there were... A bunch of them. He was the New York one in, uh, from uh, 69 to 71. And was the franchise part of a television deal whereby they knew there would be a Bozo show on in New York, filmed in New York, and so they needed a New York area Bozo? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, was, it was shot at WOR, okay. you know, Channel 9. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you have any memories of going to that? Yeah. I went to the show a couple times when I was three. Wow. And uh, did you have a concept that my dad is Bozo? Did you know what that meant then? Or was it just a thing that your dad did? It was just one of those magic things, you know? Yeah. Is it a children's show? Yes. Uh, a clown? Clown? Or yes, it's Bozo, Bozo yes, the Clown. Yes. years has Bozo been around? Well, Bozo is going to be about 20 years old next year. Yes, oh, he is. I should know my children watch you all the time. Oh, yeah. thank you but, very much. But who, no, I, you know, we see you here as Bozo. Who are yes. you really? Oh, I'm Bozo. These are my street clothes. <laughs> oh. No, but really, are you Bozo? Yes. You're Bozo Bozo. Oh, yes, I'm Bozo. All right, Bozo. Well, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank my you life. very much. <laughs> But it made a, a big impact. I mean, if, when I tell people that, they get this look like, you know, that. Like they probably remember yeah, that yeah. Bozo from WOR. Right. And, and Bozo, you know, Bozo the Clown is not human, but he's played by one. I didn't know that. Where, what's his origin story? Oh, well, he's just some sort of clown entity. I mean, w this is why when, when you tell people that your dad was Bozo, they, they look at you like yeah. they don't understand. Like, you know, the Bozo is. Right this other kind of character. Now that you're talking about it, I'm kind of shocked that like, where's Bozo now, the IP of Bozo? How has that not been commodified for a new generation yet again? You know? Oh, like that's, that's the most question, iconic yeah. clown name in the history of the world. Yeah. And Probably everyone in the world knows Bozo. I should get on top of that. <laughs> I can't imagine the rights yeah. are just hanging out there. No, I mean, well, Larry, I'm sure he had it all buttoned up. Hmm. Um, and Did you your know, dad I, have to study with Larry to be Bozo? Yeah, he was trained. There was this, this rigorous training um, <laughs> program. Like you could not you could not misstep if you were going to step into the shoes. No, it was a very specific thing that, that wow. you had to be able to do. 
And then I wrote my version of it, mm -hmm. which was this, you know, extra dimensional clown being mm. that um, manifests and, and scientists capture him. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you know, they're in over their heads because you don't fuck with the clown. Do you know how your dad got this job? Is this something that he just auditioned for, like randomly? I think he just auditioned for it, yeah. Was he a clown at all, like in, in his training or... Not that I know of. No, he, he was a singer mostly. Okay. You know, he uh, he won the singing contest when he was in Korea. Okay. And was he in the army? Yeah. Okay. And uh, he came back and he pursued that and he wanted to do musical comedy and he was really, you know, a great singer. He, he recorded an album in 63. And mm. Down in the cellar. Come on, come on. Down in the cellar. was really kind of getting groomed to be great but um and uh, he had this manager who was a uh, this mob guy who wanted him to change his name oddly he said you, you want him to go with ramsey gordon for some reason so hmm. there is this pressing of 45s that we have that say ramsey, ramsey gordon. gordon hey <laughs> work is work my friend that's true okay what else about phantasm gordo well i mean you know the right from the moment that you see the flying sphere sure and, you know, I think that was even in the commercial. Oh, in the original uh, trailer? Yeah. Probably not the moment of impact. No, and certainly not the spitting of all of the brain blood <laughs> out onto the <laughs> marble floor. Now, now we know, like, whenever I see an effect where someone is holding their hands like this, we know that it's to, to cover the PVC tube that's running up their sleeve and funneling the blood yes. to the orb. <laughs> like, we know that now. But as a kid, did you have any sense of practical effects or did you just, oh, no, or you just no. went for it? I was, I don't, I, I still don't do that. I don't, don't care. Do However you make it happen, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, I, my best friend at the time was a makeup, he was studying to be a makeup artist. Oh, so, really? You know, you worship Dick Smith and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Tom Savini. Tom Savini, yeah. And so he got into all of the skeleton and, and just the whole, the mechanics of all that stuff. He would make me up to look like, a, you know, a mutilated zombie mm -hmm. and things. But I, I don't want to know. I mean, this is, I don't want to know how dreams are made. I just want to see some strange shit. You just want to see weird shit. That's right. Actually, uh, Greg Nicotero, who became one third of KNB, which is a very legendary Hollywood special effects company, ended up working with Coscarelli. I don't think on this one, but on maybe Phantasm 2 or 3. Now, what about Bubba Hotep? Did you follow Coscarelli to that well, particular you know, slice he, of weirdness. By the time that movie came out, I had kind of lost touch with right. with Coscarelli, and it, just because he, there was such a, a long time span between yeah. films, and I, you know, it's worth checking out. If oh, you I haven't saw seen it. it. Oh, you have seen it. Okay. Well, the circumstances. I, I saw it. Um, when was that? Two thousand two. Right. I had a huge fight with my lady, mm. and I slammed the door. And and I, at the time, I still had my own apartment on Tenth right. Street. So I stormed up to, uh, <laughs> I think I went up to uh, Village East, Kmart, and oh. I was walking angrily around the, the aisles of Kmart, <laughs> and then I decided, I'm going to a fucking movie, and I, I just went over to Second Avenue, yeah. saw Bubba, I was the only guy in the, the only theater. The only guy in Bubba Hotep. And I was sitting there, and Bubba Hotep <laughs> did, you, did you have any idea what it was? Did you know it was Coscarelli before you went in? No, in fact, I wouldn't even, if you'd mentioned the name Coscarelli at the time, I wouldn't have made any. Oh, I really? No, I... Because, you know, so you really don't phantasm was, you know, it was a childhood thing. I didn't pay attention to who the directors were sure. then. And so by then, I, I had, you know, I hadn't really revisited it. Okay. I love the movie of Baba Hotep. Yeah. And I love, um, what's his name? Uh, my square jaw Bruce cousin, Campbell. Bruce Campbell, yeah. Yes. You guys do have similar jaws. Ossie Davis. There's one thing that still throws me. How does an ancient Egyptian wind up in an East Texas rest home and why is he writing on the shit house walls, ma'am? Well, he went in to take a crap, got bored, started writing on the walls. He probably wrote on pyramid walls centuries ago. Oh, come on, man. Like, what would he crap? I mean, it's not like he'd eat. Well, he eats souls. So I assumed that he would crap soul residue. Uh, by that, I would mean that if you die from his mouth, you don't go to the other side where the souls go. He digests souls until they don't exist anymore. And you're just so much toilet water decoration. See, Bruce Campbell, everything went right for him. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay got left in a dust. 
Well, you know, you could be a late bloomer, Gordo. Uh, I watched Bubba Hotep again a couple nights ago uh, because, again, in Cascarelli's book, uh, there's such an epic and long tale of like how that movie came to be made. Uh, and Joe R. Lansdale is a great mystery writer, a great crime writer, uh, wrote the short story that it's based on. And how it came to be has a great making of story. And again, it's the pacing, is I, which I loved. The whole first kind of half of the movie is this long setup of how Elvis came to be in this Texas rest home impersonating an Elvis impersonator. Uh, but then he starts to do battle with the mummy, Bubba Hotep. Yeah. And really once that kicks in, I kind of lost some interest because then you're just kind of in the, 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 there's some snappy patter, but you're in the mechanics of a kind of a zombie flick or a. And so it just kind of devolves. Into uh, that you know, it's just not my thing. I'm like, I'm more interested in the first part of the Coscarelli stuff, which is like all the setup and the character development, which is done really well. Mm -hmm. And watching Bruce Campbell do his thing and get to do something a little different for yeah. him at the time, uh, I thought it was great. Did, did you like John Dies at the End? You know, I haven't seen that. Uh, I, I like very much reading about it. And yeah, I, I was do all excited see that. about it when, it when I heard about it. And I, um, it didn't really live up to mm. what I was hoping. I mean, it certainly was good, but yeah. I, I, did you know that the Swedish death metal band Entombed performed a cover of the Phantasm theme? I saw Entombed in Germany a couple of you years did? ago. Yeah, at Hamburg, at Wacken. Uh, well, maybe they performed Left Hand Path. Oh God, I wonder if they must have. So the, the eight-note theme of Phantasm reminded me a lot of both the Mike Oldfield Tubular Bells Exorcist theme. Oh, definitely, yeah. And the John Carpenter Halloween theme. I don't know how many notes are in the John Carpenter Halloween well, theme. Well, let's see. Um, They're both all kind of like doo-dee-doo-dee-doo-dee-doo-dee-doo. Um, John oh, wait. Halloween is... Uh... Yes. I, I whistle that in elevators just to see if somebody <laughs> kicks in the bass line, you know? And then what about tubular bells, which was used tubular, in The Exorcist? Um, yes. Uh, and wait, who was the band? Um, was it Goblin who did a version yes, of that? Yes, Goblin. Yeah. Goblin also, well, the two inspirations were Goblin and Mike Oldfield were the soundtrack inspirations uh, for the Phantasm soundtrack, which was done by just these this old school guy that Coscarelli had hooked up with, who I think made one of the great horror scores of any movie. I mean, it's, it's a really compelling soundtrack. Oh, yeah, soundtrack. there's so much you can do with it. Gordon, mm -hmm. let's move on to your Latchkey TV clips oh, yeah. because um, these were kind of fascinating to me. Hello? I can't believe no one had mentioned this one yet on the podcast. You were the first person to reference this brilliant, brilliant theme. What I love about this that I didn't remember was like this whole narrative that you're given through the open of what happened to Steve Austin. Yeah, it's just perfectly encapsulated. It's like a little movie. This this was such so perfectly made for ten year olds. Oh yes. It's just everything that I needed. 
We used to yeah, play Six Million Dollar Man games sure. in the yard. Yeah. And um, since then, I've been making the Six Million Dollar Man sound when I lift heavy things. Mm. And this line coming up? Yeah. That is so iconic. Like, we have the technology was a, is the catchphrase forever. The world's first bionic man. Why do you think this appealed to 10-year-old boy psyche? Oh, God, it just... Just just the idea of... Well, the idea that you're secretly... You got something going on. Yeah. Nobody understands Nobody it. understands you're it. You're very, very strong. I, I knew guys who uh, would go to... You know, would pretend to be robots. This guy, Wilfred Block, sure. pretended to be a robot sometimes. Right. And sometimes you'd like to drop a hint, like maybe you were bionic to somebody... Mm -hmm. uh, to Tracy... Uh, Tracy Manning. Is that one of your school I got, crushes? I got her to, to ask me, Gordon, are you bionic? Wow. And I said, I can't, I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think 10-year-old and 12-year-old boys, we want to be other. We want to be special in some way, right? Yeah. We're sort of, we're behind the curve in terms of emotional maturity compared to girls our age, right? Well, it just, I needed to be perceived as being cool or mysterious. Sure. Never really feel that way. Right. But see, I think that's a very boy thing to like try to be perceived a certain way as opposed to just being comfortable in our own skin. Yeah, right? I guess so. That's just not cool to be <laughs> just comfortable or not. There's gotta be but something. like when you think of the kids that were in your neighborhood that were like when I think now of the people that were in our neighborhood when I was a kid, the ones that still have this quality we're kind of together at eight nine seven years old like they knew who they were they were comfortable in that and they didn't try to pretend to be anything else that was not my story i was trying to be anybody but who i was yeah and it sounds like you were too but sure i i can't think of anybody who um was normal that i knew <laughs> no one at all <laughs> no one was normal nobody that i wanted to know <laughs> Oh, my God. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. And this is also sort of part of your DNA, knowing you, that when I played this, I was like, this that, and the six million, this and the $6 million man together and Phantasm, those are like the three pinnacle axes of Gordon <laughs> Ramsay, and you're about to hear one of them. This one's like sort of the psychedelic. Oh, yeah. Banana, two bananas, three bananas, four. Four bananas make a bunch of so do many more. Over hill and highway, the banana buggies go. Now, what did you like about that show? Maybe because of my dad's show. Oh, okay. I just, I mean, there, what's not to like about it? It just, it's, <laughs> I know, but it's just sort of like, it's so, like, it's not cool. Uh, like, Six Million Dollar Man is cool. Well, that came later. I mean, this show was, I mean, anything that's f as far away from reality as mm, you can get. You also liked. Yeah. And, and I was willing to believe that a guy in a giant dog costume is really that dog, you know. <laughs> it's like, like little kid acid, you know. Little kid acid, true. And similarly, probably at the same time was uh, your next selection. This is probably like a similar back-to-back -back for you, which is the monkeys. Here we come. was a pretty good TV show. It's funny. No one ever talks about the TV show because now it's both fashionable to like love the music again, right? Mm -hmm. Psychedelic in quotes, right? For its time. That was the idea. Yeah. I mean, this is like the, just the, you know, it was campy as it comes. Campy as it comes. Yeah. And we used to act out all the scenes on the beach and stuff. Sure. And your last one uh, is the show I didn't watch. Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp. It's just sort of like Mission Impossible married with a chimpanzee show. Yeah, this is somebody's brainstorm that made it into reality somehow. 
Very cool visuals. Yeah. And like somebody got kind to of record Brit. the theme song. Isn't it kind of like like swinging London? Was it a British thing? I think so, yeah. Oh. Oh, so there's like a whole roster of chimps. Yeah, yeah. And then oh, there's God. the Matahari. Matahari. Oh, oh, yeah. Chump is the name of the organization. Get it? I don't know how many seasons or episodes it was. But... Can't have been many. Strange mind. Wow. Every chimp in Hollywood was working yeah, on this I, series. God. This was a, basically, a this is party. you before drugs, right? Yeah. Oh, no, that thing happened where I just closed the window and now I can't make it stop playing. Let's just watch the whole thing. Really big show. Oh, they do like an Ed Sullivan takeoff yeah. at the end? Coconut groove. Anyway. So, oh, yeah. wow, Gordon, those are your formative TV shows. Fascinating. Well, you know, I, I had this memory of, uh, remember the time that Bugs Bunny was uh, uh, getting chased around by that, that uh, evil scientist? Yeah. And somebody breaks a bottle of ether? Mm-hmm. Yes. Never send a monster to do the work of an evil scientist. Now be a cooperative little bunny. And let me have your brain. Sorry, Doc, but I need what little I've got. Come back here, you rabbit. And so, and they float I off remember, on yeah, the clouds. Like, Come back. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That yes. was one of the things that made me think, hmm, what is this? What is this? What is I remember that? being a kid and going to the dentist at a time yes. when you could still get laughing gas, oh, yeah. which, of course, we didn't know at the time was nitrous oxide. And I remember being in the chair and having the gas administered, and over the Muzak system, they were playing Eye in the Sky. Alan Parsons project, <laughs> which if you listen to that now, is such a narcoticized, compressed audio experience yeah. that it it's like being on heroin in a way. <laughs> it's 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 a surreal track if you hear it. It's kind of yeah. a genius. It's a, it's, I know, it's I not like it rock. Recently. It's, right? no, it's, it's, it's what is it? It's a special thing. <laughs> it's like, and just imagine floating away on nitrous oxide with eye in the sky playing. Like wow. that for me was my moment of going like, wait. A oh yeah, well, me too. I mean, what well, is I mean, this? well, first came bugs, and then my dentist experience where, um, I would ask the dentist, "Can I have sweet air?" Yes, because it tasted and, sweet and, back then, and he'd say. Ask your mom, and I'd look at my mom, and she'd say, "Oh, okay." This is like just to get our yeah. teeth cleaned, yeah. by the way. Back and I would in the day, so high, <laughs> just sitting, just never wanting it to end. Because now I realize, like, of course, as we get into our high school and college years, people do whippets. We experiment with nitrous oxide oh, yeah, tanks yeah. or whatever. But I think in the medical world, we were breathing a mixture. Well, you got to pipe some oxygen. You got to pipe some oxygen yeah. because we were continually breathing it. Mm. We weren't sort of going for the pass out, wake up experience that we would go for later in life. No, not the massive brain damage. But, but it's actually actually something to the oxygen nitrous mixture, which 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 would keep you. Oh, it enhances it. Yeah, in sure. That kind of bugsy, ethery, Alan Parsons projecty kind of headspace as a kid. Yeah, dentists. They don't. I, I mean, know, they, I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I think you can still get it if you ask real nice. You think? I don't know. It's never an option. I mean, but I haven't asked. Really, I, I wouldn't do. get it now. These are just not good times, are they? <laughs> 
I mean, unless you're positing that it's a good thing to turn young kids on to mind altering drugs in the dentist chair. Well, I mean, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> I got no regrets. Got no regrets. Yeah. Great. Well, let's talk detailed box office receipts for Fanta. No, I'm just kidding. So I think really what, uh, if you're looking at the final tally, what was the uh, ratio? Actually, it did gross $11 million at the box office in 1979. Wow. And that, would he make it for like 50 grand or something? No, he made it for about 200 to 300 grand. Oh. But I think probably Embassy Pictures made most of that money. I don't know that Don Coscarelli made that money, but- I'm not sure. Well, Don Coscarelli is, I mean, he's really a gem. I didn't realize he was born in Tripoli. That's right. He and, was. And so when, how old was he when he got over here? Oh, I think he was pretty young. I mean, he kind of grew up. It's funny. Another movie we referenced was uh, Over the Edge. Remember that? Matt Dillon, teens. Yeah, yeah. Lock, like parking lot, suburb. teens. He kind of grew up a little bit like that, minus the troublemaking, rebellious side. Uh, <clears throat> he grew up in Southern California and had that kind of childhood where there was a development and they had access to construction materials as they were right. building and the suburb. And the word subdivision probably is involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Has he got anything coming up? Well, I did notice on his IMDb page, Bubba Nosferatu, Curse of the She-Vampires, which is announced hmm. as a screenplay that he wrote based on characters by... Joe R. Lansdale, but I'm not sure what the status of it is as a production. He did mention wanting to do a sequel, and then it went through various torturous moments with Bruce Campbell ultimately uh, deciding not to do it, kind of in the, in the years immediately oh, following its 2002 release. I'm not sure why. I think Bruce Campbell also kind of had a moment sort of after that, right? He kind of crossed over a little bit and still is enjoying that moment to this day, I would say. Ash versus the Evil Dead, you know, that whole kind of moment. That, that really only started in 2015, and he's still, still kind of riding that high right now. And now he does the voice of King Edmund on Tangled, the series. Now a Disney employee. I'm sure you don't like that, do you, Gordo? Oh, you remember my, my encounter with Disney, don't you? Walt Disney? Oh, no, well, Disney, oh, Disney didn't, they, they looked into my Twitter past and chose to kick me off this job that I booked uh, what? Last, last year. Get the, I didn't hear the story. Yeah, I booked this job riding a Harley all around Beverly Hills. It was a promo job for uh, um, the show, the motorcycle gang show, uh, Mayans. Okay, Mayans MC. Right, and so I got booked to, to ride around like, like a gang all around doing this kind of That's weird great. game show thing. Yeah. And uh, I got a call from the guy putting it, yeah, um, like Disney, uh, they looked at your tweets and they, they don't like them. What had so, you tweeted that uh, was I don't offensive? Even know. It was some innocuous. <laughs> they said, did you ever tweet about like marijuana or LSD? I said, probably. Can't have that I in said, the Disney empire. Well, you know, it's a show about uh, wow. Mexican drug gang murderers. So we so can't we have, can't have no. anyone who would have any references to drugs on their Twitter exactly, timeline. Right. Are you serious? Well, no, That's crazy. Well, I think that it might have been another, you know, because Disney had just acquired Fox. And so if Fox wouldn't have given a show. Sure. Disney, they have this. I mean, well, were you going to be interacting with the public or are you just going to be driving around on a motorcycle? We would be going to, like, people would be winning uh, things. That, it was like a live game show during the broadcast. Okay. So that if they won, the gang would show up at their doorstep oh my and God. give them the gift. You know? That's a great idea. Right. And, and then uh, beat them with chains. Right. And, um, you know, just God, jack that's them up amazing. in general. But they, uh, I, I, I didn't even know you were on Twitter, me, by the way, Gordo. Oh, yeah, I'm all over Twitter. I've got literally hundreds of followers on Twitter. And uh, then he said to me, oh, well, did you never tweet about Trump, do you? And I said, no, I, I, I mean, that doesn't take, I, I, I'm not interested yeah. in that kind of thing. Except for one time. I, I li somebody had retweeted something that Trump said yeah. uh, in 2012. Okay. And it made me laugh. So I liked it. I, I <laughs> like that's that. what they were upset about. And I'll tell you what it was. It was just he said, um, "The Coca-Cola company is not happy with me, but that's okay. I'll keep drinking their garbage." And I thought, that, like, <laughs> he that, didn't actually say that. <laughs> he did. Did. That's what he said. <laughs> and so I thought, that's funny. I don't care who said and you it. Retweeted that or just liked I it? I just liked it. Oh my and, god! And they said, well, we can't have these Trumpers. I'm like, these are such strange. I said, don't worry, I'll cancel myself. I'm way That's ahead so of you. weird. Uh, you know, it's Were you just, upset at the time? Oh, yeah. And I said, listen, Disney, 
you know, if you're okay with me and everyone I know hating you for the rest of our lives, then let's just part ways wow. and we'll do it like that. That's crazy. That's okay. I don't. I wonder if that wouldn't happen now. Because what was this? A couple of years ago? It was in August, just last. August. Oh, just August yeah. of last year. Okay, well, that was kind of peak Twitter cancel culture. You yeah, know? they got some guy in there. His job is just you just look a vent into everyone's your... online past, and if it wow. doesn't let live up, you got to go. Now that's a good idea for uh, a TV series. Yeah, that guy, the cancelizer, the, the cancel. <laughs> Actually, you know what the funny part is? Is that I I hooked up this South African biker buddy of mine. To replace you? Well, I, I got him. I set him up for the job because he'd already moved out there. And this guy is multiple felon, uh, just a giant pot. Welcome, yeah. sir. You're not online. You never tweeted anything offensive. And I told him to cut me from the team. And he was like, you got to be kidding me. You? <laughs> not me. And he's still he's like squeaky clean. Because he has no online presence. He has presence. no online he's presence. A serious outlaw. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's life in the 21st century, Gordo. I couldn't say it any better than that. That's right. This is like planet Amazon Disney. But don't you appreciate with all of your foundational appreciation for these twisted other realms? Like you have to appreciate even when you're in the moment. Maybe you don't appreciate it in the moment, but certainly sitting here now, you have to appreciate the you-ness of that, that <laughs> twist, don't you? <laughs> like it's so brilliant that it would only happen to you. Right? Yeah, I guess I should be thankful. The art is the life. It's not that you're you're supposed to go make something. Like, you're living the art. And if, when you simply tell these stories of these things that occurred to you, that's when everyone laughs. That's when everyone's having a great time because this could only happen to you, <laughs> right? Well, keep doing you, Gordo, okay? All right, well, thanks It'll for It'll all work out in the end. Thanks for coming back yeah. on the pod. Always good to talk with you, and I will catch up with you soon. You betcha. Thank you. Not Megger. Not